Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. We're so glad you're here with us this morning at Randall Church. And as we open up our Bibles today, this is uh, something we call Freedom Sunday. It's our second year participating. Uh, last year was our first as we uh, got involved. And I'll give you uh, more details about what Freedom Sunday is as we go. Uh, but today, churches all around the world are dedicating their services to this issue of slavery around the world. And I know specifically that may seem like a lot to swallow, a lot to, even as I say that statement, many of you in your mind are thinking, I didn't realize that slavery uh, was, was still a problem. And so, uh, yes, it still exists. And the staggering reality is today there are more people, so if you didn't know the answer to this question, uh, today there are more people in slavery right now than at any other time in human history. Now we have to look at those numbers and realize that yes, uh, in some ways the proportionate nature of slavery has gone down, but when we talk about the physical nature of how many people today are enslaved, uh, that number is higher than it has ever been before. There are more people in slavery at this very moment than any other time previously. And I know it's hard to get our, our heads and our hearts around that, and to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's hard to even grasp the depth of that. And so really the only way that we can do that is by telling individual stories and putting a personal name and face uh, with the problem. And so we're going to do that to some extent today and do our best to be able to tell a few stories uh, that will help you uh, kind of capture that. Uh, for me, putting a name and a face to the problem uh, didn't come by way of, uh, we're going to show you a few videos this morning, but it didn't come through that. It was actually through a novel, through a book uh, series by a singer, a songwriter, and now an author of some children's literature. His name is Andrew Peterson. Some of you are familiar. And there was a book that he wrote, a series of books that he wrote that my daughter and I recently uh, went through. Uh, it is written for a 10 to 12-year-old, and so it was perfect for me. Um, to be able to go through. And so uh, his series is called The Wingfeather Saga. And so it has this target audience of a 10 to 12-year-old boy. And for whatever reason, it was just something that she and I uh, really connected on. And we read through the series and made our way through it, uh, found the series to be compelling, to, to be challenging. I would recommend it to any of you uh, with kids or any of you who just uh, want something that is going to challenge you in a way that you have not been challenged before to think about the beauty and the glory of God. So as you went through this series, and, and the hardest part about most, and, and so we went this spring to a concert that Andrew Peterson put on, and uh, beforehand there was a Q&A session, and so my daughter and I got to go and listen to him answer questions about his songs and about uh, this book and this series uh, specifically. And so as he answered questions about the series, he told most children, he said, if children, if you are opening up this, this series for the first time, uh, the first book, the first chapter of the first book is the biggest hurdle to get over. And so if you can get over that first chapter of the first book and the kind of scary nature of what that is, you'll be ready for the rest of the series. And uh, we've, I would agree with that. I would see that to be true. And, and what is pictured there in that book is the, this quiet little village. And in this quiet little village, everybody knows that late at night, the sound of hooves come pounding through the streets, and there's a black carriage or a black stagecoach that comes through the city, and it comes and in, during the night snatches up little kids and takes them away. And what he writes about in his book is this um, idea of, it's called a factory, the fork factory actually, although they make no forks there whatsoever. Um, but this is a child labor, child enslavement. And, and although the, the little uh, 
the little town is only a few miles away. Those parents, those families, that village thinks that their kids have been stolen away forever and even have died, and yet they are just next door in this factory. And the, the way that he writes about the faces of these children and how there's no hope and they've lost the glimmer of light that a child is supposed to have, and they, they just kind of move on through the day without hope. There was something about that story that brought me here. Now, I have to tell you, that story is not true. But it was to my delight when we went to this concert and went to uh, hear him speak and hear him share this spring that International Justice Mission was one of the people in the lobby uh, that he was promoting because he actually did know a lot about uh, child slave labor and he does know a lot about slavery around the world and he brought it to life in a way in this book that seemed just a little too real, just a little bit too raw and that's why it stung so much when you read uh, those portions of the book. The reality is, is the story is very real. And, and those stories, although we can sit here and feel like we have a nice, comfortable village that there's no, there's no one coming through with horses at night and stealing away our children, but it is a very, the brutal reality of the world that we live in is that that does exist in many places around the world. Uh, at its peak today, slavery affects over 45 million people, according to the Global Slavery Index. 45 million people. That is five times the size of New York City held in slavery right now. An international justice mission is who we're highlighting today. They are very focused on this problem within areas of the internet. There's slave, uh, uh, sex slave that is there, uh, brick kilns, uh, brothels. Uh, there are Fish, uh, fishing expeditions that are entirely run by slaves and slave workers, uh, tree cutting companies and stone quarries that are all being run uh, by slave labor of different sorts. Specifically, one in four of these slaves is a child. One in four of these slaves and all of these different entities of what slavery looks like in our modern context is a child. 25% of the 45 million that I'm talking about here are children. When it comes to sex trafficking, 4.2 million and 11.6 million people are held in commercial sexual exploitation, according to International Labor Organization. Human trafficking generates $150 billion every year. Specifically, in India, a child goes missing every eight minutes, and only half of them are ever seen again. This is right now. This is this morning, October 1st, 2017. We're talking about human trafficking and other forms of slavery, and it is a very real issue. It is a staggering issue. It is a global epidemic. It's modern-day bonded labor. It's slavery. The question is today, we the church, the people of God, what are we going to do about it? We'll find today that God has given a very specific biblical mandate that we need to take steps on, to take action, to move forward. What will we do? Slavery is now in its new form. Uh, we, are, we are more aware of it uh, because it's, it's beginning to kind of creep in at the corners. And then here in the United States, we have the residue of generations of slavery, and racism is still rampant in our country. 
And the reality is, is we can shrug our shoulders at it. And, and this racist behavior has been here for generations. And now we're just starting to come to grips with it because of things like the cell phone, being able to video what's going on and, and make it more public and how it's being demonstrated. But the problem has always been there. And the reality is, uh, at the root of it, Christians have decided to be able to dismiss this because it doesn't affect you or doesn't affect me. In fact, slavery has been termed by some as America's original sin, the main problem that we have all decided not to deal with. And the reality, just like that story at the beginning, is that it's, it's happening and it's happening around us and we can just shrug our shoulders and try to act like nothing is going on or we can deal with the problem. Sadly, uh, defenders of segregation, specifically when slavery and, and, and then later into the 1950s, when, when it was at its peak, when it's in its public forum, they looked at the authority of Old Testament, biblical narratives to be able to talk about the regarding run race over another. Rather than looking at the New Testament, when we see uh, oriented arguments for the opponents for the civil rights movement was all built around New Testament arguments. And specifically, where we're at today in relation to this series and where we are right now is in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel was one of their most prominent arguments for slavery. And so one of the most influential examples, I'm going to need to read a lot of this to give this to you. In 1954, uh, G.T. Gillespie had a speech to the Presbyterian Synod of Mississippi. This is shortly after the Supreme Court ruled in the Brown versus the Board of Education. Gillespie's argument was endorsed by many of the churches in southern states and began to sprawl outward from there and had far-reaching recognition elsewhere before we start just pointing at that part of the country. At its foundation, Gillespie's argument depended on a racial ideology that he believed was reflective of the will of God as a nature, as a nature of, excuse me, as revealed in natural law. He, he argued that the most successful peoples in human history had fiercely protected their racial purity. That Gillespie refers to the Jews and the Anglo-Saxon race as the very best example where racial maxing had taken place. The inevitable, uh, what would happen is if you allowed race to be able to change and intermingle, that that would lead to the decline of that culture. And that the only reason why racial differentiation differentiation was now under attack is what Gillespie was arguing at that time, at that point, was because of the godless ideology of Marxism, where Marxism thought that a unified human race transcended the boundaries of nation, gender, race, and class, and that because that was the influence that was there, that Christians ought to go in an entirely different direction. I believe, however, that these things were not under, under attack. The reason why this was a problem was not because of the godlessness of a Marxist leader, but because of who God was. A holy God was not going to allow this to continue. God has a desire, we'll see today, to protect those who are oppressed. You see the logo in front of you, this long story short. If you're here with us for the first time this week, we are making our way through. We started in September, and we are trying to capture the essence of the Holy Scriptures from Genesis through Revelation in 17 weeks. We're making our way from September through Christmas, uh, the end of this year, to be able to look at the whole context of God's Word. What is the story that is being told? 
And so we've started with a few weeks in Genesis, and now we have to pick up our pace and move a little bit quickly, more quickly. And so we're in Genesis chapter 11 today. We'll be there today, and you realize, uh, if you turn there, if you've got your uh, Bibles from the pews, it's actually on page 11 as you make your way there. Genesis is a book of beginnings, a book of origins. That's what the word Genesis actually means. And we've talked about this is where the universe has its origin, the origin of time, of action, of space, of matter, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the atmosphere, the origin of the hydrosphere, the origin of all life, the origin of all mankind, the origin of marriage, the origin of the family, the origin of sin. We talked about this last week, the origin of guilt, and the origin of a need for redemption, and the origin of forgiveness. The origin of culture and civilization and all of that will be built into the message today. The origin of poetry, the origin of music, all of that is being embraced here. And today we're going to look at specifically what is the biblical uh, narrative, the biblical picture, the biblical view of where the origin of nations and the origin of languages come from. And you'll see in, in the book of Genesis, if you study it, that all of the book of Genesis so far, all the way through Genesis chapter 11, will deal with a lot bigger picture. And then moving forward from Genesis chapter 12, moving forward, there is this narrowing in of a specific people, uh, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, who through the Son of God, he would save and redeem the world. So I'm going to move pretty quickly through. We're going to read some verses quickly here, and I'm just going to kind of point out a few things as we go that we're going to need to be able to come back to in a few moments. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, we said Genesis chapter 11 is where we are, but you can turn back about a page to Genesis chapter 9, and this is Noah. So Noah, as the great flood that covered the whole earth, the, the waters recede, and you are left now with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, with his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There to now do what? Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 says this. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. You can circle that, underline it. Fill the earth. The role, the job that he gave them, it was their job to expand and to fill the earth. Fast forward to verse 12, if you will. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. Circle that, underline it, star it. Remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures and every kind on the earth. So the flood has happened. We have Noah and his sons are there and God has told them to populate the earth. And he has also told them he is going to keep this covenant with them, that he would never again send a flood to destroy the earth, that he would have a covenant with his people in that. And then chapter 10, what you will see is now we get uh, the lineage because he has told them to fill the earth. And we see this in many of your Bibles even have this title, the origin of nations or the league of nations, if you will, the beginnings of nations. And so you'll see uh, the, uh, the genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
chapter 10, verse 1 says, This is the account of the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. Many children were born to them after the great flood. And if you look through your Bibles there, and it feels a little bit like reading a dictionary, you'll have the name that this person followed this person, which followed this person, which followed this person. It goes on and on and on. I want you to jump ahead, if you will, to verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8. It's a very key uh, person to uh, our study this morning. So a lot of names have been listed, and all of a sudden there's a super uh, specific description given here in chapter 10, verse 8. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. So you can circle that name Nimrod, and I'll explain why. He was a mighty hunter before, will you circle that, the Lord. And that's why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So this was a saying that was going around in those days. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, circle that, underline it. Uh, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna in Shinar. Circle that, underline that. So the words Babylon, Shinar, and Nimrod, you need to be able to come back to those in a moment. And then we get to chapter 11, the main point of where we're headed today. We're going to get further details on Nimrod's kingdom. And what has happened here is we're, we're zooming in. So he's given us the full lineage first, and then he's going to tell us the story of what happened under Nimrod. So we already saw that there is an a, uh, expansion of his name specifically in the text, and then now even more specifically an expansion of what happened under the, the kingdom of Nimrod. And so these verses are brief, but it's packed. It's stuffed together because with these nine verses, we're going to find out the origin of nations, the origin of languages, of essentially how they come into existence uh, by the very power and single act of God. So now, here we are, chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, the main kind of point I'm trying to get us to today. I wanted to give you a little of the backstory there. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, remember that, circle that, and settled there. So that's the title of what's going on here. We're now in Shinar. And they said to each other, verse 3, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone for tar and mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people that they were building. The Lord said, as, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord gathered, scattered them from there all over the earth because they stopped and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. So in these nine verses, you see there's a few things that just keep kind of popping back up, and you can just make a note to this, be able to look at it again. The words, come let us, are in there a number of times. And, and when you look at what's going on here, it would seem at first glance that it seemed like man was getting powerful, and God just kind of crushed them to make sure that they could not uh, get any larger. When people think about the biblical account of, of the Tower of Babel, often we think about really that the languages have changed here, that suddenly there's this changing of languages. And if you read children's literature, there's, there's this idea of like they were working well together and then the one guy says, here, hand me the brick, and the other guy throws the brick at him, or, and, and kind of making light of the fact that the languages got confused here. 
But there's some details behind the story. There's the story behind the story that we need to look at. Confusing their languages is part of it, uh, but there's more to it there. That's not necessarily the main focus of this account. The language is only a small part of it. This is really an account of, as we talked about last week, the real nature of the depravity of man and of mankind. And it demonstrates how this type of behavior is deeply rooted, not only in those that were there at the Tower of Babel, but is deeply rooted, this sin nature is deeply rooted in every son of Adam. And that includes you and me this morning. And while you may have never physically tried to go and build a tower to heaven, while you may not have ever physically participated in slave labor or slave trade, you need to understand that we have all taken steps forward on these this faulty staircase this morning. And so as we look at this passage, as you get out, maybe you've got your notes with you this morning to be able to go through, and I'm going to move through them quickly because we don't have a lot of time, but I want you to be able to see what is universal and what is the story behind the story that actually affects you and me this morning. So if you're using your notes, here are your fill-ins for what steps man wants to take. What steps man wants to take. And here's your fill-ins. Preserve your group at any cost. Your destiny is in your hands. Make a name for yourself. Don't stop until you get yours. This is deeply rooted in you and in me and in the nature, the sin nature of mankind. It says, preserve your group at any cost. In verse 4 it says, come, let us build ourselves a city. Come, let us build ourselves a city. God has told us to spread to the ends of the world, to fill the earth. Let's not do that, but let's stay here at this location and build ourselves a city and fortify for ourselves. Your destiny is in your hand. Verse 4 also says, with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And there's different commentary on this of why would they want to get to the heavens? Was it that they wanted to go and do battle with God himself? Perhaps But this idea of seizing your destiny or your domain, of of being at the top of the tower and being able to look out over all that is theirs and all that they rule over, that, that you need to reach that and have this destiny is in your hands and all you have to do is build it. Making a name for yourselves, verse 4, that we may make a name for ourselves. There was something very, that that resonates with all of us about wanting to, to have people know who we are. That was no different in this day either. And then don't stop until you get yours. You find in verse 6, and some of your translations will help you with this. It says that nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. The real word behind the word here is the word restraint. There will be no restraint. I believe the King James Version uses that. That there's no restraint. There could be nothing that could hold them Back. So let me go through these things and be able to make sense out of it for you why I believe that it ties in very specifically to Freedom Sunday. Nimrod, you might want to know this, that his, his name means rebel or tyrant. And, and, and this man named Nimrod, we found in chapter 10, that he became a mighty one on the earth. If you read there further, it also says that he is a mighty hunter. Can I help you with the words mighty hunter? He's not talking about specifically hunting for wildlife. He's being a hunter of men, a controller of men, a killer of people. And the reality is as he gets into power, he's not a killer of animals, but he would kill people in order to, to keep them in control. 
And this word that says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord is also be able, can be translated that he is a mighty hunter in opposition to the Lord. That while God had his plans, that this mighty hunter, this mighty warrior had his plans and he would shake his fist and defy God himself. So in doing that, Nimrod rises to power and leads thousands of people who come from this line of Noah. And so even though there was only Noah and his three sons after the flood, you, know, you don't have to go that far forward to be able to see that these, we've got thousands of people here. And as he reaches this position by wickedness and by being a tyrant and by being a killer and by being this type of killer, he forces upon them this amazing rebellion of God. And the fact that he is using here, as it describes, uh, that he is using bricks rather than stones, because bricks would be something that you would use. And we see the evidence of it again uh, it, later in Exodus when you, when you see Pharaoh and how he puts people, the Hebrews in this case, he puts them under his thumb and under his control and makes them work with, in a very similar manner, be able to work with these kilns, be able to make bricks again. And so using these bricks, why? Because that's what was available to him there. So rather than going anywhere else, he wanted to stay right there and stay in control. These verses are speaking of Nimrod. <coughs> and so when it says stuff like, come, let us build ourselves a city. Or with a tower that reaches to the heavens that we make, make a name for ourselves. He's talking about a very small and very specific group. His inner circle, his family themselves, of making a name for themselves and for themselves and having control and power. And they've got one voice to do so over all the others. He had every intention to enslave and impress, oppress the entire known world at that point. And the bottom line was, God was not going to allow it. God was not going to allow it. And you know what? Today, and this is where our connection comes forward today, God is not going to allow oppression today either. And what happens, and we're going to show you a video here in just a second of what it looks like on a small scale, the very similar approach of someone who has these ideas of preserving their group or their thought at any cost, be able to put up the walls of the city, that their destiny, your destiny is in your hands, you would hear or make a name for yourselves. These are the same type of statements that would be found by someone who is a very oppressive leader, oppressive ruler, or a slave owner. And you'll see in the same ways that this demonstrates itself in our modern context. And so we're going to show you this morning Gallery's story to demonstrate that. So if you'll do that, gentlemen. I 
வேலைக்கு வந்தேன் எதுக்கு வந்தேன் இந்த ஆள் மோசமான எனக்கு இப்ப அந்த தைரியம் எப்படி வந்துச்சுன்னா அந்த ஆள் அடிச்சதுனால தைரியம் வந்துச்சு எந்த தவறும் இல்லாம அந்த ஆளு மேல தப்பு இருந்தா நம்ம கேட்கலாம் நியாயம் ரொம்ப பக்கம் இருக்குது எதனால நம்பணும்னா அங்க வந்து ஒரு வாட்டி நாங்க போன் பண்ணும் போது எங்களை வந்து பார்த்தாங்க எனக்கு தைரியம் சொன்னாங்க நீ பயப்படாத கௌரி உனக்கு பக்கத்தோனே நாங்க இருக்கோம் நாங்க கண்டிப்பா உன்னை காப்பாத்துவோம் நீங்க நல்லா இருக்கணும் சந்தோஷமா ஆடம்பரமா இருக்கேன் ஒரு தாயா இருக்கிறதுனால எனக்கு ரொம்ப பெருமையா இருக்குது And yes, we're talking specifically here about an agency that gets involved and does their, their work to be able to respond to that. And if you weren't able to read all the subtitles, Gowrie and her husband wanted to support their children and pay for their medical bills and begin working for someone. But when their debt was paid, it was a trick. And that owner spun things around in them and continued to begin to increase the loan and violently forced that family into bonded labor. And this, this occurred for almost 10 years before IJM was able to rescue them. And so uh, when we look at this, uh, this passage here today, when we look at what Nimrod did to these people there at the Tower of Babel, Uh, there's some commentaries won't even be certain that Nimrod was actually his name, that they didn't want to speak his name, but instead he became named this, this term tyrant. They didn't even want to speak his name because he was such an awful person. So Nimrod is more of a general term for this guy. But you see that the steps that he took 
the leadership that he had, the power that he had over these people as a faulty staircase. And the reality is, is when you look at this passage here, uh, that without war, without famine, without disease, or without fire falling from the sky, and as he promised, without a national, a great flood to be able to, a global flood to use, uh, or any of those things, God graciously used something as simple as the language as they were speaking to break this people up, to stop this tyrant and to release people. Verse 8 says, so the Lord scattered them from there over the earth, and they stopped building the city. They're doing the very thing he had called them to do in the first place. Verse 9 says, this is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. God graciously intervened again so that his people could be free. And as I said, chapter 12 takes us into the specific story of his people in Israel. And again and again and again, all the way through the Old Testament, if you're familiar, familiar with God's word, all the way through the Old Testament, we see him intervene again and again and again. Until the New Testament opens up. And we see him intervene once and for all, not only for the sake of his people of Israel, but for the sake of all people of every tongue. And so if you look at what steps God has taken in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, if you want to look there, he said this. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogues as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the specific place where it was written. Verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What is it that God cares most about? These are your next villain. What step does God want for man? We see that here listed out very clearly in this message. He said, today is going to be fulfilled for you in your very hearing. The first is to bring good news to the poor. Second, to proclaim release to the captives. Third, recovery of the sight to the blind. And fourth, letting the oppressed go free. You see, Jesus is declaring the very, very good news that he's offering freedom for them all to seek uh, those who are prison who he loves. He's offering freedom from that. It's a proclamation that Jesus extends to people like Gowrie that we just saw in the video, those who've been physically imprisoned by others or other people. God is offering freedom to them. He says he's fighting for them just like he did at the Tower of Babel. And it doesn't mean that there has to be an act of God to blow up everything. But no, he's going to do it graciously to give all people an opportunity to be able to see him at work. And so through these stories and through these lives, we see God, through International Justice Mission as one of many agencies, we see God's hands at work. So I'll show you one more video this morning. It tells you someone named Gideon. And his story and the way that he has been rescued, just like our Heavenly Father sends a rescuer, Jesus Christ, looking for us and rescuing each of us.
Gideon's grandfather was not wealthy enough to file charges against the slave owner, but IJM was able to bring him back, able to rescue him and bring him home. But even as you hear the story, and we don't know his language, but we just read those subtitles to be able to know there's this longing in him for someone to go and find his little brother. Will you rescue him as well? And we serve a heavenly father who is relentless in his pursuit. We read in the New Testament how he leaves 99 looking for the one. He has unlimited resources. He never stops. The Tower of Babel happens somewhere in the range of 101 years to possibly 340 years after the flood. Do you know when Abraham was born? Roughly 292 to 300 years after the flood. We see this in Genesis chapter 11. It's well within the range of the Tower of Babel. And what's even more interesting is that Abraham is not born anywhere else except for right there at the same location. The Bible says Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis chapter 11, verse 28. The Tower of Babel was in Shinar, which was later known as Babylonian or Chaldea. Abraham was right there, and chapter 12, verse 1 says this, The Lord had said to Abraham, Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth we bless through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. In that same time, that same generation, God had a rescue plan ready for his people. He called Abraham in that moment, go from your country. And what was his response? Because why? Because the Tower of Babel sent people in every direction. 
And he said, go from your country and I will make a great people of you. And in doing that, Abram's response was what? So Abram went as the Lord told him. Abraham took steps. Abram took steps down the path that God had laid out for him. He responded immediately. And God's rescue plan began once again for his people. See, this morning, the next thing in your notes just says there, what action steps do I need to make? This morning, maybe God is calling you to go or to take steps, move forward. After the service, very specifically in relation to Freedom Sunday and what we're talking about today, we have a kiosk in the back. Uh, very specifically looking for $24 a month from any of you or all of you that would be willing to do so to be able to partner with IJM as it goes to free slavery until all are free is what they say. And so in doing that, maybe that's your action step that you need to take today. Uh, but maybe it's different than that. Maybe it's just knowing that you are building a faulty staircase. That when it says, let's make a name for ourselves, you realize that that's what you've been doing your whole life. And that in itself is defiance. You are the tyrant, the rebel before the Lord this morning. And maybe you need to take steps towards him. Repent and walk towards him this morning. You see, the long story short is this. Verse, Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, In their hearts, humans plan their course. The hearts of Nimrod and his family were evil. The hearts of those who do harm to others and enslave them are evil. However, but the Lord establishes their steps. We are reminded that God is in control. As I just stated, the statement that IJM lives by is the statement of until all are free. This morning we do have the communion table in front of us. And as the communion attendees come down to assist us in this this morning, until all are free. It's a powerful statement for them to live by. But for us, you know what the statement is that we live by, communion specifically, is until he comes. This will do until he comes, until all are free, yes, but until he comes, we will take steps forward. And the Lord's Supper is more than just sipping a, a cup of juice and eating a wafer. It, it's a realization that this connects us to something bigger. It's a time for us to, to evaluate what steps are we taking, what direction are we walking, which way would God be calling us this morning. And so it's more than religious ritual. It's communion. It's a common union with other believers. And so here as a church, we celebrate that together by passing these plates, first the bread and then the juice, and we'll make our way back through the aisles and then come back forward and do it a second time around. But in doing that, it allows for a time of silence. So if there are some steps that you have to write down on that sheet of paper, if it's blank right now, you ought to take this time to write something down. God, what steps do you have for me today? Because you cared enough. Your rescue plan was big enough that you chased after me hard enough to send your only son to die on the cross for me. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And so that is where we will begin this morning.